listening to the Business of Baking podcast with Michelle Green, the small business podcast that's all about successfully running your own sweet food company without losing your mind. If you've ever brought dessert to a party and been told you can make a fortune selling those, then you're in the right place. This is an honest, straight-talking podcast about the highs and lows of being in small business. Fueled by late nights, crazy client stories, and a permanent sugar high, we're going to listen, share, and learn our way to sweet business success. Here's your host, writer, speaker, recovering cake decorator, and incurable sweet tooth, Michelle Green. Everybody and his brother, mother, father, sister, brother loves to give advice, especially when you become a parent, right? And I've spent however many episodes of this podcast giving you 20, I think so, lots, lots of episodes of this podcast giving you great advice, not only for myself, but from other people. So today I thought I'd share some of the great advice I've been given over the course of my life in the hopes that you find it useful, interesting, and probably a little hilarious as we go along. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Business of Baking podcast. Let's get going. So after giving advice to people for years and years and years and years, and also taking advice from people for years and years and years, I thought it'd be kind of fun to do a podcast episode where I gave you some of the best advice I've been given from all kinds of interesting people. And of course, me being me, a lot of these come with some kind of interesting stories. So without further ado, let's go on to some of the the best or most interesting advice that I've ever been given. Some of it's kind of serious, some of it not so much. You know, a bit like me, a bit serious, a bit not. So the fr- and by the way, these are in no, I should say, these are in no uh, specific order. It's just kind of like stuff that flew into my head. I actually have, a, a, according to the list in front of me, I have eight pieces of advice, but you know what? We might end up at like a hundred. I might start talking. This, this, this episode might never end. Anyway, stick with me. So the first bit of advice I got was use both hands. Now, I know that that sounds a little bit dodgy. <laughs> I, I am not starting this podcast with sex advice. This advice came from my boss, Joe. I had, a, I had a boss named Joe. Really amazingly, she was my boss at three separate jobs in like three separate locations. She was head chef uh, at a couple of cafes I worked in, and she was a kitchen manager for a catering company I worked in. And, and she, that was, she gave me that advice at the catering company. So worked for this catering company and it was an amazing place to work by the way I learned heaps of that job and being a big catering company we often used to have to make things by the hundreds like hundreds of you know sandwiches or hundreds of tarts or hundreds of shoe balls or hundreds of pastries or whatever it was like like big quantity of stuff and I will never forget this it was spring racing which in Melbourne Australia is, is the horse racing time of year a lot of catering events happen and we were putting duck, I think it was duck, uh, duck meat into these little tiny pastry cases. Literally, they're like an inch across. And so in one hand, I had um, nothing. And there was sitting on the table was a big metal bowl full of duck, uh, duck meat or whatever and shredded duck meat. And the other hand, I had a glove on and I was putting duck meat, like I'd pick up a little pinch of it, put it in the tart, pick up a pinch, right? And so my, my right hand is going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And Joe comes up to me and she says, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling these duck cases. And she's like, uh, yeah, that's great. But what about your other hand? I'm like, what about my other hand? And she's like, why aren't you using both of your hands? I'm like, uh, what? And she's like, well, you don't need to hold the bowl, right? And I'm like, uh, I guess not. And so she literally stood right where I was standing, 
put both hands in the bowl, took two pinches of duck meat, leaned forward, and put them into two pastry cases, thus doubling her speed. So here I am going with one hand back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth, and she just left the bowl in one place and picked up two lots of meat and, and or duck and put it into two pastry cases and was moving twice as fast. And I was like, oh my God, like what a revelation, right? And she turns to me and she says, you know what, Michelle, God gave you two hands, use them. And I was like, oh, oh, wow, good point, Joe, right? Now, it wasn't like she was telling me to multitask because multitasking is kind of useless. She was basically saying, use the tools you are given. Don't just use one tool, be half as productive when you can use both tools. And that advice has actually stood me in really good stead over the years because I often find myself going, oh, this job is really slow. Why is it so slow? It's taking me forever. And I think maybe I use both hands. And either I use both hands literally or I find a way to make it more efficient and move faster. Like why was my left arm just kind of like dangling there doing nothing when I didn't need to hold that bowl, right? So I could just as easily have done that. And so many times in life I've gone, oh yeah, use both hands. So that was actually invaluable advice. By the way, at the time it annoyed me. <laughs> Not gonna lie, it actually kind of pissed me off. But it pissed me off because it was so obvious, not because she said anything wrong, but just because it was so screamingly obvious. Like, oh, if I don't need to touch the bowl, why can't I pick up two pinches of this duck meat and put it into these two pastry cases and thus be done, you know, twice as fast. And it's also true, like if you're moving things from one shelf to another, rather than moving one cookie off your baking sheet to the drying rack, why can't you pick up a cookie in each hand and move them both across, right? Use both hands. It's great advice. It actually works. The other bit of advice I got was, um, this is not the job for you. <laughs> that actually wasn't quite the advice. It was more like try before you buy. So I had this big dream. I can't remember if I've told you guys this story or not. A apologies if I'm getting old and I'm repeating myself here. But for the longest time when I became a pastry chef, my big dream was to work in a hotel kitchen. I really wanted to work as a hotel pastry chef. And why I wanted to work as a hotel pastry chef is because I grew up in Los Angeles and we used to see like in the news and stuff, like famous people going to, you know, hotels in Vegas and getting these big cakes and these like amazing sugar show pieces and stuff. And I really wanted to work in a hotel. I actually, on a personal level, have a real love for hotels. I've always loved hotels. I love oh, just everything about them. I love the beautiful sheets and the bed and the way that like it's all set up so crisp and I love the decor and I love how you feel. So even the crappy hotel, you still feel kind of like luxurious and the way that they like greet you by name and everything about hotels. I'm a big fan of hotels, right? If, if I had to pick an alternative career, one of them for sure would be working in hotels because I just find them so romantic and amazing. Anyhow, so I wanted to be a pastry chef in a hotel and I applied for loads and loads and loads of pastry chef jobs in hotels. I can't even tell you how many, dozens probably. And most of the time I didn't get an interview, but almost every time I did get an interview, I would show up and I would have my cake portfolio and I'd be like, look, look at all my beautiful, amazing cakes. I'm so special and awesome. And I wouldn't get the job. And one time I went to an interview at the Grand Hyatt here in Melbourne, super swanky hotel. And I walked into this interview and this was, I can't, honestly, I think this was like interview number six out of a hundred applications, probably it was lots. And I sat down and the, the HR lady is talking to me and within like two minutes, I knew I wasn't going to get the job. You know, you like, you can get that kind of feeling. No, I wasn't going to get the job. So I said to her, can I just interrupt this interview to say, I know you're not going to give me this job, but I would really appreciate some advice. 
And I told her the truth. I said, I've been trying desperately to become a pastry chef in a hotel kitchen. It's my big dream. I've always wanted to do it. And I said, I rarely get an interview. And when I do get an interview, I get rejected pretty much immediately. I said, do you have any advice? Like, how do I crack the code? What is the secret to getting a job as a pastry chef in a hotel kitchen? And I was so fortunate and that she took the time to not only answer me, but she was very, very honest. And she said to me, the issue, Michelle, is that you have no experience in high volume. And I said, high volume? Like, what does that have to do with anything? And she said, I think you have a, a misguided notion about what hotel kitchens are like. She said, hotels are all about volume. We feed hundreds of people at hundreds of functions every single day, not to mention hundreds of hotel uh, guests. And she said, we've got to be able to produce high quality at high speed. And she said, nothing in your resume, nothing in these pictures, nothing of what you've told me indicates that you would be able to pump out, you know, 10,000 cookies in a night or, you know, 5,000 petty fours or whatever. And she said, so we're rejecting you because none of us are convinced that you can actually do this high speed work. And I was like, oh, oh my God, that never even occurred to me, right? And she said, and also, this kind of work is not for everybody. Like, not everybody enjoys high speed, high volume. And we don't want to put you in a position where we hire you to be a pastry chef and, you know, inside of a month, you're over it and you've, you've had enough or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, that never occurred to me. So her advice was, go get a job in a catering company, work in high volume for a season over high season, and then see if you like it. And if you like it, then come back to me and I will definitely look at hiring you again because then we'll know you like it and B, we'll know you're capable of it. And so she gave me this kind of advice of like, try before you buy. And it's really, it was at the time, I was like, oh my God, that never occurred to me that I didn't have the skill they were looking for. And embarrassingly, it didn't occur to me that hotel pastry chefing was about volume. In my head, it was about, you know, making fancy birthday cakes for VIP clients and making showpieces. And I subsequently learned that the person who gets to do that is like the head chef and nobody else. So I went and I got those catering jobs and I helped out a couple of friends who worked in hotels who needed like staff over busy periods for a short period of time. And I discovered exactly what she thought I would discover, which is that I hated it. So. The advice there is maybe test out that dream before you commit to that dream. I did, by the way, subsequently get a job in a hotel here in Melbourne. I lasted exactly one week, which I think, by the way, was only like three shifts. I hated every single solitary second of it. Now, as it happens in that job, I was pretty severely bullied by somebody. So my hatred of it was a little bit related to the fact that I was bullied, but also related to the fact that I didn't like that high volume work. It wasn't the sexy, gorgeous, amazing, beautiful work I thought it would be. That's what my cake business was. So maybe before you stick yourself to a dream, maybe give that dream a try before you buy, right? The third piece of advice that I got uh, from somebody who I respect very much uh, was the, the first ever business coach that I hired. His name was David. And the advice he gave me, I'm going to share it with you in a second, but the advice he gave me, oh man, this one, honestly, these days I still use it, but it still pisses me off, <laughs> which is probably why it was good advice. But the advice he gave me was really simple. He actually said to me, anytime you find yourself waffling about a decision, like, should I do this or should I do that or should I do, do whatever? He actually said, waffling just means that you're looking for external validation of your choice. And so the official advice was, he used to say, the decision has already been made. 
It's just that you are wandering around between yes, no, maybe, I don't know, should I, shouldn't I, whatever, because you want somebody else to validate your choice. But in your heart of hearts, the decision has already been made. And that piece of advice has, oh man, informed so many. It's made me a better decision maker, or rather it's made me a better declaration of decision making because I used to be like, I don't know, do I want this? Do I want that? Do I want this? Do I want that? Do I want the other? And these days when I find myself getting stuck in that procrastinating decision making sort of you know, no man's land, I find myself saying, you know what, Michelle, the decision has already been made. You just have to be honest and open and brave enough to stick to it. The second part of that advice he used to say to me is the only decision is really simple. It's either a hell yes or it's a no. Like there's nothing in between. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think sometimes you do have to kind of say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. And, you know, it might not be a hell yes. It might take you a while for it to get to the hell yes part. But that bit about the decision has already been made was life-changingly profound. And so often I find myself thinking not only for my own decisions, but for the decisions of the people around me, like the decision has already been made. So why are we wasting our time pretending like we're debating this when we all know the truth already? That one, oh my goodness, that one's come back to haunt me a bunch of times. It's a hard one too, because sometimes I want to waffle. Sometimes I want to be like, I don't know, but let's do a pro and con list. Uh, let's ask like 45 more people. Let's see what my mom thinks. Yeah, I wonder what the kids have to say about this, when in reality, the decision has been made. So I find that advice hard because it's so true, but sometimes it's a little bit hard It's a little bit hard to have that moment where you look within and you actually realize that not only has the decision been made, but you now need to own that decision. So that's a tough one. But it, it has worked really well and has stood me in really good stead. The decision has already been made. Yeah. Uh so yeah, thanks David for that one. That one that one's never left me. That one sticks around, bangs around in the back of my head quite a lot. Uh, the next bit of interesting life and, and business advice I got was from my dad. I've talked about my dad a fair bit. He was a, a big influence in my life and he was the ultimate entrepreneur really. Uh, but one of the things he said, which was honestly like the worst advice. In fact, at the time he gave it to me, I was really angry about it. I'm still kind of angry about it. Uh, I'd called my dad to say, uh, dad, like I'm really, business is really hard and I'm really struggling and I don't have a lot of money and this is just so exhausting and whatever. And he said to me, Michelinka, not everyone is cut out to run a business. And at the time, I was exceptionally hurt and exceptionally angry about that advice because it felt like he was saying to me, you're not good enough, right? You're never going to make it. You're not cut out for it. You should just give up on this. And I think in truth, he was kind of saying, you know, if this is all too hard, give up. But I think in his own way, he was kind of being motivating, like sort of saying, if you weren't cut out for this, you would have given up on this a long time ago sort of thing. So he used to say, yeah, not everyone is cut out to run a business. And the interesting thing is I don't, uh, you know, I kind of half agree with him in that I think you can learn to run a business, but I think the difference is that not everybody wants to, and that capacity and capability are two different things. You know, just because you are capable of doing something doesn't mean you have the capacity to, or just because you're both capable and have the capacity doesn't mean you want to. There has to be will in there. You have to want to do it. And I've met people who would probably be brilliant business owners but who frankly don't want that in their lives. It's not interested, right? And I've met people who desperately want to be business owners and didn't have 
the math skills or the resilience skills or the whatever skills they were missing. And they went out and learned it, went out and got it, you know? So not everyone is cut out to run a business. Maybe, Dad. I think more accurately, not everyone who's capable wants to. My dad is sadly no longer alive, so we can't actually have this conversation, but I kind of wish we could because it'd be really interesting to see why he thought that, why he thought not everyone was cut out to run a business, right? I think certainly that there were skills around resilience and the ability to bounce back and the ability to problem solve and the ability to whatever. Not everyone has those skills for sure. So I think he was onto something, but I kind of have my own questions about why he thought that. Maybe he ran into lots of people who weren't weren't that good at at the time like I say the advice was crushing really crushing because I was like is he telling me I'm not going to make it I will say that I use that advice as a motivating force though like after he said that to me I was like yeah well I'm going to prove your ass wrong and I'm going to prove you wrong and like you just you just watch me I'm going to be a squillionaire I'm going to make this work and I was (laughs) I actually used his what I saw as disapproval as as a really big motivator so yeah one of the kind of very unsexy bits of advice I ever got uh, came from a woman named Vicky. She owned a company, uh, she owned a cookie company here in Melbourne and I wanted her to be my mentor. And I called her and I asked her if she would be willing to let me buy her a coffee and get some advice and whatever. And that relationship actually never got off the ground. She, I think she just, I think she liked the idea of being a mentor, but either couldn't commit to, I don't know why it never got off the ground, but I ended up only meeting her once literally once for about 10 or 15 minutes in her cookie business, which by the way, she's since sold. And she gave me this advice, which is that you need to account when, when you're doing the math of your business and you're doing the, the profit and all that and working out your costings and pricing, you need to account for hidden work time. So you need to account for administrative time. You need to account for marketing time. You need to account for cleaning the floor, running to the supermarket to pick up supplies, all that kind of stuff. When I was first doing my costing, I thought labor referred to making of the product. I didn't understand that labor occurred to everything I do in my business, including washing the floor and getting groceries and whatever. And she had this really, you know, when she said it at the time, I was like, oh, oh yeah, all the pricing and costing I've done until now was really just me kind of thinking about, okay, it takes me an hour to mix the batter and two hours to cut out the dough and an hour to like royal ice this thing or whatever it was. It didn't occur to me that the work I was doing, which was not product, needed to be accounted for somewhere. Somebody had to pay for that somewhere, right? And what I learned is that the boss doing it does not mean it's free. That was the the big lesson in that advice she gave me. Just because the boss is doing it and the boss might not be getting paid doesn't mean that it's free. And I was like, huh. And this has actually informed the way that I teach pricing and costing now. I talk about that a lot. And I talk about the reason why you have to account for all those things. But I think it's a really common fallacy of business that we're like, I'll just do it myself because it's not going to cost me anything for me to do it. Whereas if I have to hire somebody else, it is going to cost me to pay them. And that is a false economy. It 100% costs you something. It might not seem obvious. It might not be cash money in the beginning, but for the boss to do the work costs something. And that, that was, that was like a massive, massive revelation. Ever since then, actually, and actually, I should find out for you exactly who said it, 
I feel like to give you guys advice and not know who said it is a little bit dodgy. <laughs> so I did actually look it up who it was. I actually think originally I saw this on Oprah, but she did not say it. This quote is attributed to Maya Angelou. And she said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. And it's taken me a while to kind of come to the party on that one. But every time I've thought about that quote or I thought about that, that piece of advice uh, from Maya Angelou, I've thought to myself, oh my God, in hindsight, everything's 2020 because I can see that person's behavior way back then. And yet I'm still complaining about it into now. Why is that? And I think in business, this applies in so many ways. Employees, customers, work colleagues. If those people are loving and kind and treat you beautifully at the beginning, chances are they're going to stay that way unless there's obviously some sort of circumstantial evidence. But if somebody is unkind or ungenerous or is always late to work or always pays your bills late or treats you in a way which is not what you want or not what you're willing to accept, you have to believe them. And this is really hard. This is really hard for humans because we want to give other humans the benefit of the doubt, right? We want to believe that people are good and that they're going to do the right thing and they're going to do the nice thing by us and whatever. But that bit of advice was really profound. When somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. I think in my case, I've never managed to believe somebody the first time, but I have realized, oh, you know what? We're just repeating that behavior pattern. They did this to me last time. This is what annoyed me about them six months ago. And it's given me the freedom to let go of relationships that I think I otherwise would not necessarily have let, let go of. It's given me the freedom to go, you know what? This isn't my first rodeo with this person. And this behavior is not going to change anytime soon. And I was too stupid or too blind to recognize it the first time. But now that I've recognized it, I'm going to let them go. So knowing that, that when somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time, knowing that advice has actually given me the emotional freedom to let go of employees, of customers, of work colleagues, of friends, of family members, and has actually given, it's kind of like, it's sort of like giving me permission to let go, you know? It's a good one. It's a good one to remember. Write that one down. When somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Um, one other a bit of advice, which is not official advice. I don't think anybody's ever given me this advice, but a bit of advice that I've, I've certainly attached myself to is that you, you never stop learning and that really we might as well die if we're not going to learn anymore. But I think the thing I've learned is that I used to believe that that never stop learning thing really only applied to our craft and, or how our artistry or how we do things. And I don't, I think that that never stop learning is actually a much, much, much bigger concept. I don't think it's about our craft. I think it's about our people, our customers, our colleagues, our friends. And I think it's about ourselves. I think we never stop learning and uncovering things about ourselves and about the people we spend time with. And I think that as we grow and as we change and the world around us changes, right? We all become somewhat different people. We adapt. We adapt to new technologies. We adapt to new circumstances. We adapt to new people. And so there's always something new to learn. There's always something new to learn. There's always something new to uncover. There's always something new to discover. 
about ourselves and the people around us. So never, ever, ever stop learning. That's a really big one for me. And it's funny, even though I have retired from making product, I will still find myself going to a cake class or a cookie class or watching a demo at a, at a cake show or going to a cake show or whatever, because even though I don't actively make it, there's something really exciting about learning new techniques or seeing how people do things or watching how they conduct themselves. And I find myself saying yes to a lot of new learning experiences because I want to be a part of that learning culture. I want to always be pushing myself to learn better, to be better, to see better, to act better, to appreciate better. So that's a big one. And the last bit of advice that I wanted to share with you guys that I got from somebody else actually comes uh, from my husband, David. So the story is that when David and I first got married, uh, we went on a very short honeymoon because we were intending to then go and backpack around Europe six months later. And so we did that. So six months later, we, we didn't really backpack, we suitcased. <laughs> but anyway, uh, David and I went to Europe uh, on a trip for six weeks. And we went all through Europe during Christmas time at the end of the year. And for those of you who are in Europe or have been, been around Europe at that time of year, there's a lot of Christmas markets, like a lot of Christmas markets. And we spent a lot of time in Germany at the time. And in Germany, they have a lot of Christmas markets and they sell everything from like food to trinkets to whatever. And we're traveling through Europe and I'm going to like all these Christmas markets or whatever. And... I fell in love. One of the, the things I really like is trees and nature and stuff. And I fell in love with these, um, I, I guess you'd call them like display ornaments. They're not really Christmas ornaments. They're like display ornaments. And they're wooden trees that are carved from a single piece of wood. And they range from very, very small, like honestly, an inch or two inches high, all the way to very, very, very large. And they take this like, piece of wood and they carve the um like they, they carve the bows of the tree and so like the wood curls in on itself and creates kind of like a it's like a little curly tree it's a little curly wooden tree it's hard to explain but it's a little ornament and people would put them like on their table as like a table decoration or you'd put it as scenery as part of like if you had like you know, a ceramic, you know, Santa house or whatever you would put it next to that. And they're these beautiful wooden carved trees. And some of them are very, very, very intricate. And some of them are very, very simple, but they are so unbelievably beautiful. And I, I quite like the, the irony that a wooden tree is cut out of the very thing it is, right? A tree cut out of a tree. It's just, I, I don't know. It's just beautiful. But we were on a very, very strict budget in Europe, like an extremely strict budget. We were like $100 a day or whatever. I can't remember now. Some stupid amount of small money, which meant that we weren't eating very much and we were staying at like dodgy places and eating like bread and cheese nearly every meal. And so I love these wooden trees and I used to look at them longingly every time we passed by one of these stalls which sold these trees. And it's a lot of stalls because there's a lot of these all over Europe. They're very, very, very common. And I used to look at them and I used to touch them and I used to, you know, feel their little curls and that sounds so creepy. But anyway, I used to, I used to just pick them up and look at them and love them. And I would have just like put them down with a sigh, like, oh, I can't afford it, you know, whatever. And I, I would never buy one. And David started to notice that I was not buying these, these trees or whatever. And he's like, why don't you just buy one? Like, what's the big deal? And I'm like, look, babe, we're like living off, you know, cheese and bread. Like, you know, come on. Like, I can't justify buying one of these trees. And he's like, Michelle, the little ones are like, you know, five bucks or whatever. It was, it was very inexpensive. I can't remember now, but the really simple little ones were really inexpensive. And I was like, I know, but like that's $5 we could spend on food or like an experience or whatever. And he's like, he looked at me and he's like, Michelle, buy the damn tree. 
And I was like, what? And he's like, buy the tree, Michelle. Just buy the tree. Just, Michelle, buy the tree. And if you don't do it, I'm going to do it for you. Just buy the tree. And I was like, David, like, we can't. Like, we're just, we're broke and whatever. And he's like, seriously, you've spent like three or four weeks pining over these trees. Ha, pun intended. You spent like three or four weeks pining over these trees, desperately wanting them. You love them so much. Like, what better memory from this trip than to have one of those trees? And he's like, come on, seriously, just buy the tree, Michelle, buy the freaking tree. And he, he chased after me and I eventually did buy a tree. I bought the smallest, plainest tree that I could find. Like it was, it was literally, I think it's like about two and a half inches tall. It was made out of like cheap pine or something. It wasn't decorated at all. Uh, I just bought this teeny tiny tree and I bought that tree and I, you know, they wrapped it really careful, carefully for me in um, tissue paper or whatever. And I was, I was in tears. Uh, that I was so excited that I'd bought one of these beautiful trees that I'd seen all through Europe. And I just, I got so much joy out of that tree and I still get so much joy out of that tree. It actually sits in my living room and I see it every single day. It's the tiniest, silliest little thing, but I love that little tree so much. And I, you know, this is 20 years ago now and I still look at it every day and it still brings me joy every day. And the lesson in the buy the tree, Michelle, right? is that sometimes the smallest things can bring you so much happiness and there is no point in denying yourself joy out of the little things. And the truth of the matter is the couple of dollars or whatever you spend for that little bit of joy is going to be forgotten long, long, long before the joy of what that thing brought you is going to be forgotten. The joy of an item or an experience will carry on long after that money has been replaced a thousand times over. And I wish that I had, I had learned that lesson earlier, right? And he still, David to this day still says that to me. If he finds me being silly or stupid about not wanting to buy, you know, a bunch of flowers or a cute pair of shoes or, you know, whatever, he will look at me and he'll say, buy the tree, Michelle, just buy the tree. And it, it's a really good reminder that the smallest thing can bring you so much happiness and you will forget about the money. The money will disappear. It will not be an issue anymore, but the joy that you get from that thing or that experience will last way, way, way longer. So buy the tree, hey? You know, we get guidance from so many people in life. We get advice from all sorts of sources, from our moms, from our sisters, from our best friends, our husbands, our partners, our business partners, our male best friends, you know, whoever. <laughs> we get advice from all kinds of people. Sometimes we get advice from people we don't know. Like if you're reading Oprah Magazine religiously like I do, right? You get advice from people you don't know. And I guess the last bit of advice I have to give you before we wrap up the podcast season is take all that advice in. Even if it's not immediately relevant to you, maybe it's something that'll be helpful for others someday. Or maybe it's something that isn't relevant to you right now but it'll be useful some other time. Or maybe it's something that's so far from what you've experienced, you can't ever, ever imagine taking that advice, but in not taking you, it forces you to come up with a better solution for yourself. You know, we have to just be willing to open our ears and open our hearts and open so much of ourselves and just listen and take it all in. And just because you take that advice in, it doesn't mean you have to use it. 
It doesn't mean you have to respond with, well, that's the worst advice I've ever heard. It doesn't mean you have to take it on. You just have to be willing to take that guidance and listen to that advice and let it soak into your soul. And maybe someday it'll be useful and maybe someday it won't. But the fact is by simply choosing to be open and choosing to take that kind of advice, you're going to live a far richer life than you would otherwise. You know, my kids, when they were little, um, you know, it kind of got out. We don't live in that big of a city and we're not in that big of a community. It got out that we were having triplets and people wanted to help us. People really wanted to help us. And so I used to come home sometimes and I would find on my front doorstep like a trash bag filled with a secondhand clothes, like baby clothes and kids clothes and toddler clothes. And it used to happen, you know, relatively often that like I'd come home or I'd come back and there'd be like a bunch of kids toys on my front, on my front um, step or whatever. And often I did, there was no note. Often I didn't know who left it there, or who had been so generous to us and whatever. And I would like hold this big bag of clothes or toys or whatever it is into the house. And I would pick through it. And obviously some things would fit my kids and some things wouldn't and some things were useful and some things weren't and some things were my taste and some things weren't my taste or whatever. But I still went through all those clothes or all those books or all those toys because I sort of saw those things as like advice. Some generous person has given this to me. I'm going to take it all in. I'm going to go through it all. And some is going to be great. And some I'm going to try and it's not going to fit them or it's not going to work for us. And so I'm going to put it back in the bag. And some is not going to suit me at all. So I might pass that on to somebody else and say, hey, I didn't like this little pair of shorts or whatever, but it might suit your son beautifully. And so I, use, I think of advice as that, like the generosity of people I know and of strangers of giving me what they believe is the best part of themselves and their knowledge, and I can choose what to do with it from here on in. And so I hope you feel that way about this podcast and everything I've written too, which is that I hope you take it all in and you sort through it for yourself and you decide what you love and what you don't love and what you want to try and what you don't want to try. And maybe there's some things that you just want to pass on to other people. Thank you so much for being a part of the Business of Baking community. Thank you so much for being a part of my life and my future and my past and my present. It's been an absolute joy to bring the podcast to you. I've loved every single minute of it. It is not ending, even though it's sounding like it's ending. I'm just going to take a break for a couple of months while I recharge my batteries, come up with some new topics, interview some amazing people. I've actually got a whole lineup of people that I'm excited to share with you. And we're going to be back, or I'm going to be back for season two of the Business of Baking podcast. Thank you so much for listening this season. I've had an absolute ball. It's been awesome. And I cannot wait until next season as well. In the interim, if there's anything you'd like to share, a personal story, or if there's somebody you'd like me to interview or a topic you'd love for me to cover, please, please, please don't hesitate to be in touch. It's michelle at thebizofbaking.com. I'm always, always happy to hear from you. And I'm always happy for you to give me advice as much as I am for me to give it to you. Thanks so much for being awesome and just keep on keeping on. Thanks for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other fun stuff for this and previous episodes at thebizofbaking.com. Until next time, may your oven stay evenly hot, your ganache never split, and may you always be in the business of being awesome.